Aloha and welcome back to Sup FM. My name's Simon Hutchinson and in the Sup FM podcast every week I chat to people who can inspire and add to your experience of Sup. What you'll find in every episode, whatever your level, is a conversation with someone who's either done something incredible in the sport or who can give you some knowledge, insights and help which will benefit you when you're out on the water. This episode is sponsored by Starboard. Starboard has a reputation for constant innovation and development, and this is woven through their organisation, particularly their board and their paddle design. The creator of the brand, Sven Rasmussen, started in windsurf by producing his innovative boards for his fledgling company back in 1994, and the performance of his boards led to the brand developing into the market leader in only 10 years. Starboard has always been behind stand-up paddling and it continues to strongly support and develop the sport. They're strong innovators and leaders when it comes to taking environmental action and they continue to push boundaries of design and functionality which make their boards and their paddles perfect for both the weekend warriors as well as the top class athletes. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website through the link in the show notes. We hope you're enjoying following us on Instagram, which is where we spend most of our time. And we also spend a bit of time on Facebook, but you can keep it old school by signing up to our SUPFM email newsletter. And if you do sign up, then as a thank you, you'll also get our free guide to our favorite apps, which are the ones that we use on the water and which help us to keep ourselves safe and informed. And the link is in our episode show notes, or you can subscribe by heading over to our website, supfmpodcast.com. It's always an honour to chat with my guests, but for the final episode of the season, I couldn't have thought of a better way to sign off than with a true legend of the sport. Someone who was there at the beginning when SUP was starting, and who has delivered a staggering amount of wins across both technical, distance, surfing, and a load of other water and dry land activities. Candice Appleby is a true icon of the sport and has been described by ESPN, the US sports broadcaster, as being a combination of Venus Williams and a whole bunch of other US female sports stars all rolled up in one package. There is no question that if SUP was a higher profile sport worldwide, then she'd be a global icon. And just to mention that she won the US SUP Surfing Championship this summer, so her career is far from over. In this episode, we talk through some of her legendary wins, including the carnage at the Battle of the Paddle 2014 and the story about how she started and how turning down a place in the US shortboard surfing team led to far more opportunities than she could ever have expected. So here's my chat with the uniquely inspiring Candice Appleby. Hey, Candice, welcome to Sup FM. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a really great honor to have you on the podcast because you're not only an iconic pioneer and ambassador of SUP, but you're also the most decorated SUP athlete we've had on the show. And this has genuinely stumped me because what I usually do in my intros is list the guests' achievements. And the reason why that would be a problem is because if I listed all of them, I'd still be talking this time next week. So what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, is just pick out a few. So um, at the end, please add in any that I've missed. So 
In terms of, of highlights, I've picked out multiple winner of SUP Connect Women of the Year. Pick that one out because that one's one that people have to vote for. Um, multiple Battle of the Paddle, California and Hawaii. Multiple Pacific Paddle Games titles, Columbia Gorge Paddle Challenge. World APP Tour Champion, M2O. Uh, 2015 was an incredible year. I mean, you won pretty much everything there. But um, pulling out there the ISA World Championships in Mexico, where you've got the gold in technical, gold in distance, and gold in the team event. And of course, that's not mentioning any of the first places in SUP surfing, representing the US in longboard and shortboard competition and prone competition as well. So I know by design I've missed a load there, but are there any other key achievements that uh, you'd pull out as particular highlights so far? Um, you covered a pretty good stretch there. Uh, you got me blushing a little bit, but um, <laughs> I guess uh, one of the one of the things that I'm most proud of too is having been the first female to compete on the standout world tour for surfing. Um, yeah. So Sunset Beach, I think that was 2008 or 2009. Uh, it was the only female in competition there and and there was the duke's ocean festival in 2008 that one was a pretty good one for me too that, that's uh, incredible and i've got that one down here as well so you became the first and only woman to beat the men in professional sup surfing events so you won both the women's and the open pro divisions that year yeah that was that was a really fun one i think that was an event that really kind of put me on the map um oh at the time and and it was it was a dream come true that's for sure well it's an awesome awesome achievement and it'd be great to have a chat with you about uh, some of your landmark wins a little bit later but before we we talk about all of that stuff and there's a lot to talk about um i i'd just like to refer back to to the beginnings and uh, i know you grew up in a family that was pretty sporty i know that you had some relatives who were sort of major league or baseball professionals but your parents also were into surfing in a big way tell me about those early days and how you got your start in surfing yeah so I've always been at the beach since I was a little girl when I was probably two weeks old or something like that I got in the water for the first time and when I was young we lived inland about an hour hour 15 minutes away from the beach um, but my parents were divorced when I was really small and my dad always lived near the beach. So on the weekends with my mom and my stepdad, I would go to San Onofre in San Clemente. And then on the weekends when I was with my my other dad, I would be at the beaches of Huntington and Laguna and Newport. So when I was young, I got a lot of exposure to different beaches. And then when I was 11 years old, our dream came true and my mom moved us to San Clemente. And so I was able to be at the beach full time. And it was amazing. I started competing in surfing, I think, when I was 10 years old. Actually, before we even lived at the beach, I was competing in surfing, which was pretty neat. And uh, part of our local surf club, the San Onofre Surfing Club, ever since I was young and compete in that surfing classic every year in September, I still compete in it. My mom competes in it, my sister, my dad, my nieces and nephews. That's a longboard competition at San Onofre Surfing Beach. It's a very nostalgic beach here mm. in California. And so, yeah, I grew up um, surfing competitively, played some water polo as well. When I was really young, before I started surfing uh, surfing competitively, I was doing t-ball and softball. 
And then in high school, um, like I said, a little bit of water polo. I was on a on what's called a step squad, which is a hip hop dance team as well when I was in high school, which is kind of a fun fact. And in high school, we had a surf team. So I actually got to surf before school. Well, actually surf for my first class of the day. So we got a grade for it. We got credit for surfing. We'd show up at the pier in the morning and drop our little card by the brick wall so our, our coach could you know, check us in if we had arrived there prior to him getting there and we'd surf for an hour, hour and a half, and then, you know, run home, shower real quick and go home, go to school. And, you know, I remember a few times the ocean kind of rushing out of my nose while I'm in (laughs) class (laughs) on my school books. But that was a really neat experience because I got to surf with some of the greatest, you know, surfers to come out of Southern California, guys that are big wave champions like Greg and Rusty Long. And then other other great surfers that have been on the world tour, like the Godowskis brothers. Um, this is for you know shortboard surfing. So I competed in shortboard and longboard surfing. And then after high school, I was invited to be on the U.S. team for the ISA Surfing Games, which was for shortboarding, and that was to take place in South Africa. But at the time, you know, these events are are self funded, so. Um, my parents couldn't really afford to pay. It was like three or $4,000 to go. So I, I declined that offer. And that's really a big stepping stone to becoming a, a professional shortboarder. But I also would have missed my first week of college. So I didn't want to miss my first week of school. So I ended up uh, going to the University of Hawaii to pursue an education, but also pursue a surfing career. Because if you can make a name for yourself in Hawaii, then you know, you, you're able to really make a name for yourself in surfing and, you know, just to get the experience of those waves over there. And, uh, yeah. Well, um, and what did you major in at University of Hawaii? I, at first I was a bio major. I was gonna go to med school and be a doctor, but that wasn't really my dream. I think that was more something that I, I could have been good at, but my mom, my mom really wanted me to be a doctor, but I ended up switching my major to tropical plants and soil science, which is a, a bachelor's of science degree. Basically, it's a combination of horticulture and agriculture, and it was really a great a great thing to study. It's very applicable, and I got to spend a lot of time on different farms on Oahu and Maui and learn things about plant production and turf management and landscape design and, you know, so... Uh, it's, it was a really fun thing to get my hands and my feet dirty and learn about horticulture and agriculture. And have you um, followed that interest on? I mean, clearly horticulture was a, a passion for you. Well, I follow it into my backyard. <laughs> but, you know, after graduating, I went full time as a professional athlete. And so I haven't pursued a career in you know, using my degree, but there's so many more things that I learned while in college and obtaining my degree that I'm able to apply to being a professional athlete, you know, even if it's just my communication skills and presentations and um, it's helped me be confident as well in public speaking. So I highly recommend to any youngins listening out there, go to school, (laughs) whether it's college or trade school or do something to continue your education after high school because there's a lot more to learn out there and, you know, just setting out to do something and finishing it is a, a pretty good thing. Uh, you can feel pretty good about that. 
and it's that cross training, isn't it? So you, you're right. Going to college teaches you so many skills about thinking, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be directly applicable to what what you end up doing. Clearly, it hasn't, but it, it's still been a massive benefit. And it was really interesting what you said about the variety of different sports that you did when you were you were growing up. And I know that's something that that you carried on. You know, you've carried on ever since. But just doing that variety of sports because. You know, Roger Federer is famous for having done just a number of different sports before he sort of decided to specialise in in tennis. And then you've got the Tiger Woods type approach where it just went down one sort of particular furrow. So what do you think um, doing lots of sports has added to, to your skills? And do you think that that's been a real advantage to you in some of the situations and some of the race situations you found yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, playing team sports as a playing team sports as a kid has really been something that is is just really important to learn camaraderie and that you're not only doing something for yourself and you can only really play team sports so long unless you go and, you know, you become a professional in a team sport. But um trying a variety of different sports as I was younger. And even as an adult now, it really actually builds my confidence in just knowing that I am naturally an athlete. Um, Every few years, I kind of like to pick up something new, try something new, whether it's a different way of training or another sport. You know, a few years ago, back in uh, 2013, 2014, I picked up beach volleyball. And it's great for my fitness, but it's also really great for my mental game to, you know, go through the humbling steps of learning something new, you know, um, working on your skills in in a new sport really helped me to gain confidence because as I was able to excel in that, I'm like, Hey, I'm an athlete. Like that's what I am. Like God created me with some gifts. And so it also allows me to trick my body, right? I'm tricking my body while also strengthening my mind for, ultimately to perform better really and stand up paddling it's it's really helped me to have diversity you know and it's fun to have hobbies and I, I was sort of gonna pursue this a bit later on but let's dive into it now so I, I had a really good um, chat with Michael Booth and uh, you know I mentioned that um, listen to you um, on his podcast which is an excellent interview but something interesting that he said is that he loves being a beginner at things and I think when I spoke to him last, he was just building a house, which is very different from his athletic career. But it's exactly right. It's about doing those new things, humbling, learning something from the bottom up and then and then mastering it. And you're absolutely right. That makes a, a massive, massive difference, doesn't it, to your performance and your mental resilience? Absolutely. I uh, remember that makes me think because when you said being a beginner at something, the first time I went to Australia was in 2010, and I had seen surf lifesaving for the first time, where, you know, they're out on the clubby uh, prone paddleboards, and they're mm. paddling in and out of the surf on their hands and knees, and I had never seen that before. And as a kid, I've always loved everything in the ocean, bodyboard, shortboard, longboard, body surf, you know, and then living in Hawaii, I got to experience stand-up paddling and canoe surfing and tandem surfing. And so when I was there, I'm like, what is that? How do I get to do it? <laughs> so I tried it and I remember trying it and I was tipping and falling all over the place. Just that it was a total kook. And, but I, it lit this fire in me like, Hey, I got to get, I want to get good at this. So on the end of that trip, I traded my sup surfboard, 
with a surf lifesaver over there. And I took a 10, six sprint board back with me to Waikiki and very few people had them over there. And at the time, and they're like, what do you have now, Candace? And <laughs> so it was, uh, that was my introduction to traditional prone paddle boarding. And then a few years later I did Molokai, uh, solo prone. And so, yeah, just like what Michael said, it's, it's, it's fun to be a beginner at something. Cause it lights, it relights that fire to, to improve. And, um, as a coach now, those experiences really help me too to be able to be a better coach for, for the people that I'm working with that are new to stand up paddling. Yeah, absolutely. And being a beginner introduces that, um, that element where you've got to embrace failure before you succeed as well, which is always a really good reminder, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay. So, so, um, going back to Hawaii, you were there in, at absolutely the right time in the right place and right at the start of, of SUP. And while Laird Hamilton tends to be one of the, the faces of that time, uh, I think if I'm right, SUP started pretty much with those Waterman families who were tandem surfing boards and using those with a paddle. Um, tell us about being in Hawaii at that incredible time and how it all started for you. Yeah, that it, I am so blessed that I was able to to be there at the time that I was and be mentored by some of the most incredible Waterman families. So I moved to Hawaii in 2003 and around 2006, I started surfing Makaha. I was training for an event on the North Shore and and then I was surfing Makaha a lot and spending time with, you know, meeting the DeSoto families and spending time with Rusty Keolana and the Froiseth families. And I saw the guys there subsurfing, you know, mostly the Keolanas and the DeSotos and the Froiseths and Malpu'u. And, and I was like, what is that? Again, <laughs> I want to do it. <laughs> and so I remember for several months, I just watched, you know, watched and committed to memory what I was seeing them doing with their paddle, the way they were surfing it. I was a little intimidated to ask to to try the equipment at the time, but eventually uh, a Rusty Kaolana gave me a paddle. And then I was living in Waikiki at the time, but spending a lot of time in Makaha. And so I remember when I was back in Waikiki, I would kind of hustle the beach boys early in the morning <laughs> and mm -hmm. just ask to borrow the biggest rental board that they had at the time. And so I, that was kind of my like secret practice away from Makaha where I would borrow a big rental surfboard because they didn't even have SUP boards in their lineup of, for rental boards at the time. And then I'd go out at Queens and Waikiki and use that paddle that Rusty had given me and then practice all the things that I had seen the guys at Makaha doing and, and excelled fa fairly quickly. I was able to use my upper body strength and my surfing experience and it was it was a lot of fun i thinking back at that time i'm like wow like what a blessing to have grown up in southern california in the 90s 80s and 90s and the height of longboarding which was my first passion and then to move to oahu in the early 2000s and be exposed to stand up paddling in its infancy you know my my dream moving to hawaii was to be a professional surfer to be more on professional shortboarder and and longboarder and but god had other plans he's like i have this whole sport that you don't even know exists yet and it's waiting for you and so um it's pretty cool when i think back on it 
Well, it's incredible. Yeah. Things always work out for the best, don't they? And yeah. Caught with those early paddles, like I bet they were pretty brutal, weren't they? So I still have that first paddle. It's probably, I think, 81 inches long, which, you know, for perspective, now I race with a 74 inch paddle and I sub surf with a 66 inch paddle. It was actually a really good paddle. It was a, it was called a Pohaku paddle, which was, you know, the brand of C4 prior to it be, being called C4. And that paddle was actually one of the very first stand-up paddles to cross the Molokai channel, um, that actual paddle that I was given to use. And so it's pretty. it's a pretty good carbon paddle. I still have it. It's in one piece. It's strong and sturdy. You know, the Hawaiians know if <laughs> they know paddling, so they definitely know how to make a, a good paddle. And then after that, I did try a few different, you know, a few different paddles over the first two years until I became a quick blade athlete. And uh, I remember I I broke I broke quite a few wooden paddles and aluminum paddles in the process. But um, yeah, that that was a great paddle, you know. So something I've been curious about, and you are uniquely qualified to comment on this, is about surf culture and the emerging subculture. And and also because you've experienced obviously that Hawaiian sort of Pacific Island culture as well, and and for me surf can feel sometimes a little bit exclusive, a bit too cool for school. Sup, clearly I'm I've got um, skin in the game here. Uh, it, to me, is super friendly and inclusive, and it seems to be that way at all levels. You know whether it's sort of leisure paddling or or at competitive level. And and also we've got the Pacific waterman culture, which obviously you, you've been immersed in. So what do you see the differences between these different cultures and, and how they fit together? Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. When I started stand up, I started in Hawaii, right? And so Hawaii, there's especially Makaha, there's very much a a celebration of doing everything. You know, on any given day, you can go to you could go to Macaw Beach and see somebody body surfing, boogie boarding, uh, longboard surfing, shortboard surfing, tandem surfing, stand up paddle surfing, canoe surfing, and even pipo, you know, pipo board riding. And mm. so, I mean, at any one time, you could see all of that, right? And so, so having experienced stand up there for the first time um, was, you know, very well accepted. Now, California was a little bit different you know people are I mean it it, it kind of goes with the territory of just where you where you're at what the break is like right different surf breaks have uh different localism and territorialism and and so it was definitely different it's it still is different in certain areas of California where I live where you're only allowed to sup in certain locations and you know people kind of look at you kind of weird but then you you get a good wave and you blow the fins out and they're like okay you're you're okay i guess <laughs> you know but as a whole um the cultures you know you're right there's there's elements of certain surf communities that can be oh the cool guy the cool girl you know you got to be you got to be cool enough but then there's other surf communities that are very um just loving and welcoming and accepting and family oriented and 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 with stand up paddling, you know, I've yet to meet or be introduced to a stand up community that uh, is disgruntled. <laughs> Everybody seems pretty stoked and and happy, and uh, especially, you know, it was interesting. My first experience with racing was kind of on a whim, and I was, you know, I got call a call the night before a race, 
um, from a man named Reedy Noy. He had a couple magazines that were based out of Oahu. And he's like, hey, there's a race tomorrow. You should do it. And I was like, a race? Like, I've never done a race before. Like, what the heck? And he's like, just get the biggest board you can find. So I got an 11-foot Angulo, which is not a very long board to do a 10-mile race on. So I, sh- I showed up to the race and I did the race and I think I got second to uh, a, a woman who was on an SIC. This was in the early days and SIC has been making downwind boards for a long time. Mm. And I remember when I crossed the finish line and at the luncheon after, it was such a different feeling to me than what I had experienced growing up at some surf events because it was not so much, um, I don't know, it just wasn't so puffed up. There wasn't same kind of egos that I had experienced. And I'm not saying all surf contests are like that, but they're subjective, right? So there's an element of I'm better than you. And, you know, there's some coolness to it. But with, with this race, it was the Kleinman race on Oahu. I remember just such a deep mutual respect among all the athletes. And it was so fun and so inclusive. And a majority of the athletes were prone paddlers. And then, you know, a subdivision had been added. But people were celebrating the fact that, hey, we all started here and we all finished. Didn't Mm. matter what place you came in, how fast you were, how ripped you were, you know, how cool you looked doing it. We all did it. And it was it was a pretty neat experience. And and from there, I was like, I'm hooked. Like, this is cool. I'll do this racing thing, too. You know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and that's been my experience, albeit, you know, thousands of miles away from Hawaii over here in the UK, you know, there is a, a particular type of culture. And just in terms of, of the Hawaiian sort of waterman culture, I mean, there's no way that you could probably um, sum that up in five hours. But um, it, what does that look like? I mean, is that a sort of inclusive culture? Obviously, we get elements through the language, through Aloha and, and so on. But, but just explain about living within that culture as you did. Yeah. Um, wow. That's, that's a, it's a big question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, the term like waterman or water woman, isn't really something that you can never call yourself truly. Mm. I think it's something that you earn and it's something that is imparted to you by the people who have come before you. At least that's what I've learned in my experience. Um, and it's really, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I have a montage of images going through my mind as I try to answer this question of just some people that are just incredible. It's really, you know, there's, there's people I've seen with stand up paddling that, oh, they know how to surf and then they start paddling and they're like, I'm a waterman. And it's like, well, maybe not, you know? Um, but it's, uh, you know, the true waterman that I've been able to, to see and experience and, and learn from are people that, their whole life revolves around the ocean. You know, they, they breathe the ocean and they celebrate it and they steward it and they teach it to others and they master their craft on a variety of disciplines and they fish and they navigate and they lay net and they, um, you know, and there are watermen that are in Hawaii and California. And, and I use that term for men and women in general, but, um, man, I, I don't, some, like you said, I could go on for five hours, but, um, you know, I think that the, it it was the most incredible experience to be able to grow up. You know, I I say grow up, I'm still growing up, but to be in my, go through my twenties basically, um, and learn from 
all of those folks in Hawaii, the incredible watermen, I'm still learning from them, even though I'm in California, and the, the great watermen that there are over here as well. I mean, it's just, I'm constantly in awe. And it's it's continuing to evolve. I mean, you look at Kai, Kai Lenny, he, you know, he's, make, he's making up a new sport in the water, it seems like every other year, you know, so... We've had Kai on the show and, you know, what a wonderful guy he is, you know, and, and encapsulates that that whole sort of culture and that attitude that, that uh, we were talking about earlier. Well, you sort of introduced a really good segue into your, your competitive career because you talked a little bit about your first race. But just tell us about those early racing days, because there weren't that many big races, I guess, out there. Was, was Hennessy's one of the one of the first ones? What? What was going on about that time outside of Hawaii? Yeah, so I, you know, I obviously did paddleboard surfing before racing, but then when racing started, yeah, it was really the Hennessy's races. You know, Paul Hennessy owned a restaurant in Southern California, and he for years put on paddleboard events. And when I say paddleboard, I mean traditional paddleboard events. And mm. so the really those races were the first races where stand up paddling started because they said, yeah, you guys can stand up paddle in these. We'll make another division, you know, and there were quite a few of those races in Southern California. There was, you know, one in Redondo beach and Manhattan and Dana point. And then I remember the first one I did was when they came for the international championship, which really at the time was the world championship of traditional paddleboarding, you know, except for, uh, except for Molokai, but stand up stand up paddling as well. So it was called the Hennessy's International Championship and Jamie Mitchell came out. He was prone paddling it at the time and that way, that race was from Turtle Bay to Waimea Bay, I believe. And so my personal race schedule that I would create was revolved around whatever downwind races or, you know, other races there were on Oahu and then I would follow all those Hennessy's races. So I'd travel back to California get to see my family and I do all those Hennessy's races that that they put on in those early years and then every once in a while something else would pop up I remember there was a race called the surf monkey and that was in Oceanside and that was probably in 2009 you know so whenever a race would pop up that I could get to I would go to it as long as it was either you know in Southern California or Hawaii and then slowly but surely other races kind of started to pop up and I'm, you know, we, we had the, of course the battle of the paddle and then we had, uh, we had two battle of the paddles. One, the, they were both at Doheny, but the first year was a little farther down at a spot called hole in the fence. And it was these laps outside. Uh, and it wasn't, we didn't really go through the surf on every lap. And then the second year was at, you know, Doheny, the actual surf break. And then by 2010, we had Doheny and Hawaii. And my first one that I actually won was Hawaii. Those first two years, I had gotten second to Jenny Kalmbach and then uh, Shakira Westrop. And then then we started BOP in 2010 and 2011, both in Hawaii and California. And, and by then, lots of other races were popping up. I had done Molokai by then. And um, yeah, it's, it's almost hard to remember. This whole, this whole last 15 years has gone by so fast that some days I'm like, wow, oh yeah, that happened. Oh yeah, I went there. I, you know, I'm like, I need to well, write this stuff down. <laughs> absolutely do. Well, you can start with your web page there because it took me ages to scroll down all of those achievements. <laughs> 
but, but just looking back to those early days, so those early days of racing, was it right the races weren't they all kind of a bit of a free for all? Yeah, as far as you know, there was there were divisions, but everybody started together. And so that was a free for all. There was no separate women's race or separate men's races. A lot of times it was one big mass start. Um, in the in a, a few years after, it would be uh, you know, maybe the women would start a minute or two behind the men, which was a cluster because that meant the fast women were trying to paddle through the back of the pack of the men, and and that was that created some chaos in itself. But, um, but yeah, some races. I'd, I'd like to say there were there were women's divisions in races a majority of the time, but you know there maybe wasn't the same amount of participation. But in in the early days of sup surfing, there was no women's divisions. There was it was mostly men's divisions. I was complete, competing against the guys, and uh, yeah, famously, yeah, one at the Duke's Ocean Fair. So the sport is so new, I can hardly describe this as old school but you mentioned the battle of the paddle particularly the one in california and, and that was one of those really iconic events and those of us who were following the sport at that time really um miss that event and it seemed to attract all of the top paddlers huge crowds and you know and, and sometimes there were some really difficult conditions and you won a few of them didn't you but 2014 in Salt Creek was a classic. Just talk us through the history of, of the event because I think you competed in the first one, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I've done all of them except for one that I sat out because I was injured. Um, but the very first one was 2008. And like I said, that was at Doheny State Park, but it wasn't at the regular surf break that everyone remembers as Doheny. It was down the down the way at a spot called Hole in the Fence. And that one was loops outside the surf line, right? And it was, I remember I had a board shaped for me in Hawaii. They had just created a board class. They said 12 and a half feet. Okay. So uh, a traditional paddleboard shaper named Dennis Pang, he's pretty famous on Oahu. He made me a race board. But he figured California, flat water, right? So he made me a giant, basically a giant prone paddleboard, but for to stand on. And so it was a pintail with really rounded rails. I fell off that board about 30 times in that race because it was windy and choppy. <laughs> and um, Chuck Patterson won that, that race. So just to date things a little bit, you know, Chuck at the time was the top dog in racing. So he won for the men. Jenny Kombach won for the women. I got second. And then the next year was 2009. It moved over to Doheny proper, you know, the surf break there. Everybody knows where the hammer buoy is. And uh, I believe Jamie Mitchell won that year. And that was the year that Slater Trout got second when he was 12. And that really put him on the map. And then Shakira Westrop from, uh, from Australia, she got first. And, you know, everybody knows her as a great sub surfer because she's won a bunch of world titles on the I and the ISA events. But what they don't know is that she's a really awesome racer, too. So she won that. I got second by the next year, 2010. We had one on in Waikiki outside Fort DeRussi. And that one was that was cool because everybody came out to, to Waikiki, which was my home at the time. So it was really neat for me to be able to say that, you know, the BOP was at both of my home breaks, really, because. I live in San Clemente, but that's the neighboring town to Dana Point, where the 
BOP and and a Doheny was. So, yep, we had 2010 both at Waikiki, which I won my first one there, and then I won a Doheny that same year. And then 2011 was I won again in Waikiki, and I won again in Doheny. And then 2012 is where you know that that year I was really starting to feel the pressure. I was really, uh, I had, I was, I was really nervous for that race. I remember like so nervous, could hardly sleep. I mean, uh, my stomach was in knots and Annabelle was doing really good at the time. You know, the, the couple years prior she had been competing, but she wasn't really, you know, like didn't have major results ever out of BOP or anything. And, but I, I had seen her coming up on the Stand Up world series, which is the APP world tour. But at that time. And so, you know, for me, I was going for my fifth one in a row, which in my mind was this big deal. You know, I mean, it's a big deal, right? And so at that time, we still started a minute and a half behind the men. And so we started, we did the race. She was about a couple board lengths ahead of me. And then I got taken out by a guy who got hit, like just fell off his board sideways and shot his board at me. And I got pushed in on a wave with his board on my back while she paddled off in front of me <laughs> before like two key buoy turns and I wasn't able to close the gap. And you know how surf racing is someone gets a gap and then they get a wave, you know, 30 seconds becomes two and a half minutes becomes three and a half minutes pretty quick. So, um, so yeah, that was 2012. And then after that, that was kind of, you know, it was actually, I could say that race was pretty monumental for me in a way that it was the starting point of a big year and a half of growth and healing and, you know, finding out who I really was. Cause you know, I grew up having been picked on a lot and I was kind of an underdog in my life. You know, I, I was bullied a lot and I experienced some hard things as a, as a kid. And, and so when I started getting really good at paddling and winning, I was getting myself worth out of winning. But then it, then it was like, when I lost, it was kind of, I had this crisis of identity of, if I'm not number one, then what am I, you know? And then I lost that race. Annabelle had her rise. Then I had dealt with some injuries. I had some old injuries that I hadn't dealt with. And so I had to deal with those injuries during that time and the source of those injuries, which was also traumatic. And so that, uh, that triggered a really big year and a half of, of growth. I ended up taking the, the next year off of the BOP kind of pulled out last minute. I had had a surgery, but was competing prematurely. And my mind just wasn't right. My heart wasn't in it, you know, and, and, uh, it was, it was a really good thing for me to say, you know what, I'm not going to compete. But prior to that BOP 2013, you know, a couple months after uh, several months after the BOP 2012, I had, you know, sent an email to Sparky and, and, and Jerry and Ron, the guys that, and Pat, they run the BOP. And I, you know, I just shared with them my experience of having, you know, been taken out by a guy during our race, which is a really important race. And I just, you know, I didn't send them an email right away because I didn't want them to think I was sour grapes or anything after that event. It was several months later, but, you know, just um, asking them and encouraging them just, you know, to give the women our own race. Because at that time, like the level was increasing, there was plenty of us And, you know, we shouldn't have, you know, men interfering in our race that can affect our performance. And so 
they were super gracious and heard me out and they were like, okay, next year you guys can have your own race. And I didn't compete the next year cause I was injured, but it was so cool. I got to do the commentary and I remember Annabelle and Jenny Kalmbach had a really great battle back and forth. Annabelle ended up winning, winning that battle, but it was so fun. And I think, you know, for the first time on the biggest stage, people really got to watch the women and see how good the women were getting, you know, how, how much the level had increased. And we weren't like just lost in the back of the pack. We got to have our own spotlight. And so that was, that was really encouraging. And then, like you said, Salt Creek, sorry, I kind of went on, I went down the the road here, but uh, then that very next year was the BOP Salt Creek and the waves were pumping. (laughs) And I think it's known as the massacre at uh, Salt Creek. Yeah, I think there is a I think there is a YouTube video out there that's just completely a carnage reel. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I literally watched it just before I came on here, so I will link to that in the show notes. But it was mm-hmm. unbelievable conditions, and what a return for you because you you you're out on the um, 2013, but you really came back in in that race just talk us through your experience that weekend because that was just I mean that was just gladiatorial that whole event wasn't it great for the spectators uh you know not so much for the participants I'm guessing yeah I loved it (laughs) I I loved the waves I think for me having a surfing background I have an extra level of calmness in the in those bigger waves um so I thought it was it was super exciting and I was super focused going into that race. You know, I had, I had gone through that, that year of, of healing and growth and, you know, finding my identity, which I was able to, you know, put in, put in my relationship with Jesus that couldn't be taken away from me. So when I stepped on the start line for that race, I, I was fired up to win. I was confident and, but I wasn't fearful. I wasn't fearful of, you know, the potential outcome of losing. Cause I, I knew who I was. So it, I was free. That was really the first race where I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm free to just be me and, and do my thing. The outcome doesn't really matter, but I still want to win. And I had a blast. I mean, that, that it was crazy. I swear they, when they blew the, the horn to start us, it triggered a six foot set. <laughs> like it didn't look like there were waves coming. And as soon as that horn went, there was a, you know, a six foot set of probably, 10 to a dozen waves just stacking, stacking, stacking and, um, and boards were flying. But you know, that was, that was one of those events where you just got to be able to stay calm under pressure and not panic, you know, when you're, and know how to maneuver your equipment and go through the waves, holding your board, using a lifeguard strap when, when they're too big to pop over and, uh, just being able to kind of hone in, stay laser focused. I had a really great team of support. At the time I was paddling with Surf Tech and Joe Bark. Um, Anthony Vela and I were still a couple at the time and he was coaching me mm-hmm. and he was catting for me. And it was just, I was in the zone, you know, I was, I was in the zone that day and it was Annabelle and I had a great race back and forth. You know, we went back and forth and, you know, I was able to, to win. I think, you know, the BOP races end up being, the winner is really the person who makes the least amount of mistakes, I think, in those races and whoever is able to ride the most waves smoothly. And that day it ended up, it ended up being me and I'm super grateful. And, and it was fun. It was back and forth. And I think at the time what I was actually reminded of this a couple of days ago, 
by Anthony. He was he was psyching me up to do the Harbor Hoot because I uh, hadn't been really I haven't been really race training. I've been coaching a lot, and he's like, "Come on, you got to do the Harbor Hoot. All your clients want to watch you race." And so he's pumping me up and telling me old BOP stories about myself. To you know, he's always a coach and he's always an encourager. So he was he was telling me about that race and how people you know, we're surprised because in the flats, I was paddling away from Annabelle. But at the time, everyone's like, Annabelle's the fastest, you know? So it was a really, it was a really great race. And we went back and forth. We both had some great rides. We both had some great beat downs. <laughs> Unfortunately, she did go the wrong way on one of the buoys. So what would have been a second place finish for her became a third place finish um, because she, she just missed a buoy. But I mean, she really, her and I really raced a, a you know, a one, two race. And and that was it was exciting. So was Annabelle your your chief rival then? I mean, you've had a long race career, so I guess you've had a lot of key targets. But would you say she was she was the the key rival that you were you were facing? Uh, definitely. Uh, at the time, uh, from about I'd say from 2012 to you know 2017, her and I were pretty solid solid rivals around 2000 uh 15 16 we were able to kind of put it to rest as far as like you know when we used to walk past each other it was kind of like flames would come out of our eyes and smoke out of our ears and you know but in those in the early days it was hard because when there would be an event the media at the time would really only cover the winner the winner for the women but they'd cover the top 3 or 5 for the men so it almost created this environment where there was only room for one woman at the top but reality in the reality is like hey you give more people recognition there's there's room for a few of us you know so we were kind of both vying for that top spot at the time and there were other great women but there was a, a good stretch there where you know pretty much her I won everything for a while but um yeah so so that 2014 that was the last battle of the paddle wasn't it and then yes following year there was the Pacific Paddle Games, and that distance race in 2015 was an absolute classic. And we talked a bit about this off air before. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes, including timings to, to view it. But I think this is possibly the most exciting finish to a race that I've ever seen. So so just to put it into context, uh, you were leading the draft. I think there were four other people behind you, including Annabelle Anderson and an 18-year-old Fiona Wild. And I think you ended up when you came to the final buoy turn, you were about a mile or a huge distance away from the sixth place person. So you had put the hammer down the whole way and they drafted behind you for the whole of that race. Just talk us through going around that buoy and the end of that race. Yeah, that one, I'm glad you mentioned it because that's a, that's like an all time, one of my favorites as far as a distance performance. I felt really good about that one. And like, like you said, I, I pulled the draft train the whole time. And it's fun for me when I go back and listen to the commentary because the guys mm. are like, oh, you know, Annabelle's really in the driver's seat. She's, she's letting Candace do all the work. She gets got it right where she wants her. And, you know, but I ended up pulling the whole way. My mindset at the time was like, you know, I knew, I knew what smart racing was, of course, but I just didn't care. I was like on such a spiritual high and I just wanted to paddle. And I just, I didn't care who drafted me. I didn't care how much energy they were conserving. I was just like, I knew where my body was at. I knew where my spirit was at, where my mind was at. And I just wanted to go. Like, I felt like 
in that race, I was on the wings of an eagle and I was just, I remember I was like talking to the Lord and praying and, and just like, it didn't matter. I'm like, I don't even care. I'm just going to keep paddling. (laughs) And then, you know, you get to that last buoy way outside the surf line at Doheny. And that's where you're like, okay, this, the rest of what's going to happen is kind of out of my control right now because I could break the pack and and get a gap, but a wave could come that they could all catch, right? Which is exactly what happened. So we come around that last can. I get a little bit of a run. I push hard, get a little bit of a run, you know, break the pack. We all disperse. I believe it was, it was myself, then Annabelle drafting right behind me. And then, oh, I want to say me, Annabelle, Fiona, Angie Jackson, and Shay Foudy. That was the order of the draft train. So I was out the farthest in front. And then Annabelle and Fiona both take off on the wave a little bit late. But Shay and Angie were even farther out. So they were actually in the very best position to catch the wave. They were catching it as it was rolling up. And then Fiona and Annabelle caught it kind of late. And they both fell. They dug their noses and they wiped out. But then I was the farthest one in and there was this last little peak of the wave that it was a Hail Mary, just kind of, <laughs> you know, go for it, get on the tail. And I remember I, I caught it right at the last bit of the closeout section and my nose poked under a teeny tiny bit, but I was able to bring it up. So then you had myself, Shay and Angie Jackson riding this last wave in. And mind you, it was high tide at Doheny, which is, you know, that pounding shore break. And so you're pounding shore break, stepping off into deep gravel, like deep course, almost quicksand. And there's some, there's some pretty cool pictures. I think of my board caddy, my buddy, Carl ring. He was just like right in the pit there, grabbing my board as I jumped off. And all three of us jumped off at the same time. And it was a, it was a sprint finish between myself, Shay and Angie, and I was able to come out victorious. And that one, even just talking about it kind of gets my adrenaline pumping. <laughs> As I said, I've, I've watched it a couple of times just this evening. And you know, if anyone wants to catch that, just check out the link in the show notes, because it is really quite something to witness. And I don't, I still don't know how you managed to do that, you know, particularly with Annabelle and Fiona wiping out shortly behind you. I mean, it was, it was frothing by the time it came to you. So how you caught it, I don't know. I guess it's all of those uh, years on the waves that that helped out. But um, I I want to also talk about 2011. You mentioned it already, but that was quite a remarkable year because you took part in a whole load of different events and triumphant in a number of events. So longboard, lifeguard racing, Kahala Challenge, that was a a triathlon, you won that. Um, You took part in prone and you did that alongside all of those premier sup events so how did you manage to fit the training in amongst all of those main events or or was it what we talked about earlier on where the variety of the events you were taking part in helped to shape the skills and and your fitness that you needed for those main sup events yeah um i think at that time I, i mean when i think back about those i did so many events i think i did like I don't know, like 30 or 40 events that year. It was absolutely absurd. <laughs> but um, yeah, I really, events also kind of became part of the training. You know, there were some times where I would be, you know, you can't really rest and travel and train and you just got to keep going and doing it all. And 
I mean, let's see, 2011, how old was I there? That's, uh, I don't even know. That's, that's really showing my age of 25. <laughs> I was, you know, so when you're 25, you're a superwoman, right? You can do anything. It's just, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, a lot of that, I just, all the, the variety of events definitely helped all the prone paddling I was doing at the time was great cross training for SUP. And, and I think I was, you know, sometimes probably running on fumes and, and just so fired up. And, you know, also in the early years, I, I was fortunate to get into the sport early, right? I got, I got in early. So by the time there was an, another, a field of women, I already had a lot of mileage under my belt. So for, for many years, I was able to kind of just go and win everything because other women didn't have the opportunity yet to gain as much experience as I had already gained at the time. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of that as well. Like not, not taking anything away from my athleticism or achievements, but the reality is that I was already doing it for a few years and I was just so fired up, you know? Um, but yeah, that, that is probably that year. If I look at that, year, I think I was, you know, un- completely undefeated, which is pretty, pretty exciting, you know, but, and like I said, to go before, to go from 2011 to then 2012, you know, not winning the BOP, um, it was kind of crushing for me, you know, to, you know, I think, you know, winning when you're winning, that's actually the easy part, you know, le- learning how to lose is the hard part. So I could talk forever about your racing career. We haven't talked about ISA in, in Mexico in 2015 or what looks like a pretty nasty wipeout in the Pan American Games in 2019. But, <laughs> but uh, I mean, you've obviously had an incredible span of, of competition and success and you're getting into the, the coaching now, which you've been doing for a number of years, but you're getting into that deeply now. But um, obviously, you've had all this success. You have been an evergreen competitor. I know you mentioned that you've had injuries that you've had to come back from, but clearly, over the span of years, there isn't much that you've done wrong in terms of training. But if if you were coaching yourself and you were doing that right back at the start of your career, what advice would you give to yourself? Recovery. A hundred percent recovery. Really, I would have, if I could, I would have beat it into myself. Said, you know, teaching myself to 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 stretch and foam roll and get massages and be a little kinder to my body. Um, you know, I guess as an athlete, you, you know, our bodies are going to age. Our aging process gets expedited, right? Because you know you're putting you're just putting that much more wear and tear on yourself and on your joints and everything, but. Yeah, if I could look back and and give myself advice of something physical that I could have done differently, um, it would have definitely been, you know, hey, make sure you take care of your body. This is how you do it. This is how you stretch. This is, you know, those are certain things that I, you know, I wish I could have been better at. But, you know, that's, I say that now because I, I hurt a little more now than I used to, but, um, who knows if, if that was inev- inevitable anyways, right. I think every, uh, at professional athlete that's done their sport for, you know, over 10 years. And for myself, I'm, I think going on 15 now, 14, 15, um, there's some element of pain that ensues. <laughs> Just turning on to your, your coaching, cause you've done that now for a, a little while you mentioned it earlier on what, what sort of buzz do you get out of, of doing that because clearly it's a big passion now for you 
Yeah, I I absolutely love coaching. I've you know with with stand up paddling, I've been teaching for a long time. I, I think I started. I worked with a company called Paddlecore Fitness all the way back in two thousand nine. Uh, 2009, 2010 in, in, in Honolulu, where I would teach a fitness workout. And, you know, then I was teaching clinics as I traveled and Anthony Vela and I launched performance paddling in 2012, where we would travel and put on clinics basically around the world as we competed. Uh, we also coached a youth team for about four years of, of kids that were all over the country. We even had some international kids. And so I've always loved coaching. Uh, him and I launched the, Performance Paddling Adult Training Club in 2015, which is a training club that meets five times a week, and you know we train adults. And then uh, later on that year, we you know we part, parted ways as a couple, but we remained friends. And uh, he ended up taking over the business, and I continued to substitute coach every once in a while. And and then in 2019, I had a few gals that I was coaching privately. Um, in between training and traveling and competing. And then, as you know, in early 2020, COVID hit. And during COVID, and then, you know, when COVID hit, it was like the world tour stopped. Uh, financial support from sponsorships all came to a screeching halt. And then I was like, okay, Lord, what am I going to do here? And I just was like, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to freak out. <laughs> You're my provider. And, you know, three clients turned into four, turned into five turned into, you know, five sub clients and then three kids I was coaching, uh, teaching surfing to a few times a week. And then I'd find myself at the end of the day, like, Hey, I love this. This is like my passion. You know, I just would come home beaming with pride and just feeling so wonderful. Like I am right in the center of my purpose doing what God created me to do, which is to, you know, serve other people with my time and my talents. And he gave me the ability to also teach, you know, and I don't take that for granted. I know that not all athletes are created that way with the ability to, to teach and to do. And, and so for myself, I just, I love it. It's so much fun for me to help people build a relationship with the ocean, to see them achieve their goals, even to see them light up when they start moving their feet on their board. And, and, so from there, I decided, you know what, this is what I, this is the brand I'm supposed to create and the business I'm supposed to have. And, you know, every athlete needs to have, I guess what they call an end game. You know, I'm not saying I'm finished as an athlete, but, um, COVID actually was the blessing from it for me was that it gave me time to pivot, you know, and, and I am able to do something that I absolutely love. And so with encouragement from, um, some clients actually, and some, some real good friends, uh, my friend, uh, Tony, who's been a just great encouragement to me for the last several years. He's created my, my personal athlete website and he has, he's now my brand manager for ocean Academy. He also has encouraged me. I created a business plan and took out a little bit of, got a little bit of a business loan and launched officially launched ocean Academy. And, and since making myself available, I just, I feel so encouraged because my schedule is totally full <laughs> and um, I have, you know, quite a few athletes. I'm, I'm probably coaching at least, you know, I, I, and when I did my projections, I thought I'd have, you know, 10 privates a week. I thought that would be my max. And now a slow week is, you know, 12, 13 clients. So on average, I 
I'm coaching about 15 clients a week. And so, you know, that, that in itself, each client is an hour and a half on the water. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's great. I love it. I'm probably paddling between 40 and 50 miles a week and it's not, you know, training mileage, but it's still good fitness. Um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily paddling that at my, at my particular, um, interval intensities, but it's great. I'm out on the water and able to encourage others. And, and I just, I just totally love it. I'm so blessed by all the clients that I have. And I say clients, but really they've become friends and they've become my family, you know? So, um, I just, I just love it. And looking forward to taking ocean Academy around the world and doing more clinics and hopefully some retreats next year. And, and it's just, uh, it's so much fun. And I'm also writing some training programs for a few paddlers around the country. And I actually did a a video stroke analysis from a, a gal named Ashley from the UK about two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's really fun. I'm, I'm totally loving it. One of the other things that you've talked about a lot is in your capacity as being a role model for, for women and girls is around mental health and particularly about inner beauty. And you, you obviously had, to, you know, a, a, a tough time growing up, but you've got some particular insights, which um, you're sharing about that. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I, um, you know, it's a, it's a continual process, even for myself, I've had a lot of growth and healing, but I experienced some, some hard things growing up. I was bullied a lot for, you know, having red hair and freckles. And when I was a really young girl, I was experienced sexual abuse for a few years of my life. And, and then, you know, having dealt with bullying, having dealt with that, it just really, really hurt my self-esteem. And then also when I was a a young surfer girl, I was probably 10 or 11. Um, at that time, Roxy was a new brand. And the way that they were depicting female surfers was mostly, you know, models, very thin models on surfboards. So mm. it put an image in my, it put an image in my mind of something that really I couldn't attain, but they created, they, they portrayed that as the epitome of a surfer girl was to look this particular way. And so I developed a lot of body image issues, self-image issues. And, you know, over the years I've worked hard at healing those parts of me and, and, uh, seeing myself the way that God, God made me not to compare myself to anybody else. And, and it's definitely a journey, you know, and I think that so many women and men experience experience that, you know, uh, body image and self image issues. And, and, uh, you know, each person's journey is their own. But for myself, I, I really realized that, you know, God created me special and unique, and he gave me red hair and freckles so that I would stand out, not so that I would, you know, blend in. And I think that, you know, I, I do believe that there's good and that there's evil. And I believe that, um, you know, the, the forces of evil, you know, whatever you pr- want to call them, um, you know, different people have different names for them, but I believe that, you know, the devil uses hurt people to hurt people, you know, and, and if as a kid, if he can, you know, get you to see yourself differently from how God intended you to be, then that's how he makes us stumble. And, and that's how he, how he hurts us. But I, what I realized I in realizing that, growing up, I was able to look back and say, wait a minute. Okay. 
what the devil meant for evil, God intended for good. And that is for me to, to stand out. And it created me to be more compassionate for other people and, and realize that everybody has a, has a journey, has a story. We all have wounds and, and, you know, we're supposed to share our story so that we can help each other. I believe that, you know, a uh, uh, a struggle that is shared is, is a struggle that's cut in half and a, and a victory that's shared is a victory doubled. So I'm, I'm trying to work on living my life that way. And I'm a bit of an open book and, uh, and I'm okay with that. I think that, you know, as an athlete, we get put on a pedestal sometimes, but, uh, really that just gives us, it gives me a, a platform to, to share, to share uh, how the Lord is working in my life and, and that he works all things for good. And he's blessed me with some great abilities. And I want to, I want to use that to be a blessing to others. Absolutely. And, and clearly faith is, is really essential in your life. And one of the things that you mentioned towards the, the front of this interview was about, um, it providing you with that fundamental anchor to something that's unmovable and it isn't conditional on winning a race or being an athlete or getting you know hundreds of likes on instagram and and it's so important for people to to realize you know whatever their own anchor is basing your self image by comparing yourself to others at a particular time just makes things very difficult for yourself doesn't it psychologically yeah absolutely i mean I I have a solid faith and a solid identity in the Lord and I still struggle, you know, uh, if I if I end up on Instagram too long or you know w- one thing is don't don't go on Instagram when you're having a bad day. Just uh go go open the Bible, go prayer, go in the go in the ocean, do something different, you know, but but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, if you put your identity in something that that can be taken from you or something that is conditional, then it's easy to be shaken. But for me, my identity is in my relationship with Jesus and he loves me. And it's as simple as that. It's like, he created me. He loves me. I have a purpose and I don't have to, there's, that's it. It's, it's actually super simple, you know, and, and that can't ever be taken away from me. So, um, you know, if, if there's anything, you know, that's most important that I share today for me, that's it. Absolutely. Really, really important point. So thanks so much for your time, Candice. You've been very, very generous with it. I do have to ask, though, before we wrap up, what are your plans for the future? I mean, I expect in terms of competition, you're just taking it sort of day by day, year by year. But based on your past record, I'm expecting to see you at the 2050 Olympic Games in London. <laughs> you say 2050? Yeah. Um, well, I- ticket <laughs> as as a coach if anything um 2050 wow but yeah um you know this year with with it with it still being i i'd call it somewhat of a covid year i was kind of watching the status of the world tour and i just had a i had a feeling it was going to continue to get pushed back so i um uh, i just stayed the course cor- stayed the course with building my business cuz like i said before it's hard to manage training and and coaching full time but i plan next year to figure out a way to manage my time so that I can train and coach. And I definitely plan on competing in some events next year. Um, you know, obviously I have some of my favorites, which are representing the U S at the ISA events. I love to be a part of those. We've got the Pan Ams coming up again in Chile. Oh, no, wait, either Chile or Argentina in 2023. So I've got my eyes set on that one. 
and uh yeah we'll just we'll see how this body holds up and and where the where uh this journey leads me but i i'm i'm not retiring yet so i'll give you that <laughs> it's well we're all very glad to hear that candice thanks so much where can people connect with you online uh, you can check me out on Instagram. My personal Instagram handle is Applestees, A-P-P-L-E-S-T-E-E-Z-E. I also have Ocean Academy USA on Instagram. If you want to check out my coaching services, check out OceanAcademyUSA.com. You can find out about private coaching, about clinics, about training programs, video analysis. If you would like to host me for a clinic, if anyone's listening that has a shop or a sub school anywhere in the world, if you're interested in me coming out to do a clinic or a retreat, um, hit me up. I'd, I'd love to come your way and, and share my knowledge and, and uh, paddle with you guys. So, yep, check me out, OceanAcademyUSA.com. And I also have CandaceAppleby.com, but my, uh, my coaching website, my business is is uh where i'd like to to send most of you so so all links as ever will be in the show notes candice thanks again for coming on it's been a genuine honor to chat with such a legend of the sport and i know i speak for all the members of the sub tribe listening so i wish you all the best and we'll be shouting for you in all your future races and, and sub surf competitions thanks so much candice and tips on the water thank you so much for having me it was awesome I had a blast Well, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that chat with Candice. And please don't forget to check out the show notes for all the links referred to in the episode. So that's the last episode of the season, but please don't despair, because if you subscribe to our email newsletter, we can keep you up to date with our bonus episodes and also our timelines for the next season, which is coming next year. And we've already got some great guests lined up. So check out our website to subscribe and keep updated. And that's over at supfmpodcast.com. Well, this is the first full solo hosted season of the SupFM podcast. And I just wanted to say a massive thank you to all the guests who have appeared on the show. I've loved every single chat I've had. Thank you to my wife, who has given great strategic direction and also for her skillful mastery of Instagram and her creation of stories. But most of all, I'd like to thank all of you for listening because every listen, every subscriber and every review makes the work that goes into the podcast worthwhile. So thank you for your support. And until next season, I'll see you on the water. <laughs>